this morning we're going to be returning to our main preaching series in the book of Exodus. Uh, uh, we, we stopped in like November, <laughs> so last year, uh, end of November, somewhere like that, somewhere there. Uh, so we're going to come back, and I, this, I, I said this, that we were going to be back here early February, and it is early February. So uh, we're going to return there to our uh, study of Exodus, and our, uh, this morning our focus will be on the doctrine of adoption, okay, or as the Bible calls it as well, the doctrine of sonship. Um, and by sonship, I don't mean just male sonship, I mean sons and daughters. Um, so as far as the gospel is concerned, what does the Bible tell us about these two doctrines? Well, I'm not, I shouldn't say two, there's, there's just one doctrine. Um, so that's going to be our focus. But before we get there, let's do a quick review. Uh, it's been few weeks since we've been here. Some of you probably forgot where we are in Exodus. So we are in chapter 6. Uh, we're going to go through the story. I'm not going to go through the points that I made throughout the, the, the narrative. Um, but we, uh, we are in the part of the story in Exodus where the mission of Moses and Aaron uh, to free the Israelites from the bonds of slavery, slavery in Egypt has just begun. It just started. Okay. Uh, in fact, if you can remember in Exodus chapter 4, it started very well. Check out what happened in Exodus chapter 4. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. And then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. And Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And what happened? The people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. So with the emotions and hopes of the Israelites running high, Moses and Aaron then took their mission to the next step. This time they talked to or spoke to Pharaoh himself. And then what did they do? They asked Pharaoh for, if you remember, did they ask Pharaoh right away? Free my people. Free the people of God. Did they do that right away? No, they asked for three days. <laughs> three days of a religious, quote-unquote, vacation. Three days leave of absence. Which back in those days was quite normal because if you know, back in those days, the people have different gods. They're, they're polytheistic back in those days. They don't just have one god. They have different gods. So the workers, sometimes they would ask the, the Pharaoh and the, the leaders or the slave masters, Hey, give us a couple of days off. We just need to worship our, our God. So Moses and Aaron did the same thing. Uh, asked for three days. Give us three days of a religious leave of absence. Uh, and I guess, and I, and I said this during that, the sermon for this, uh, I guess they thought that they should start small, right? And then tell Pharaoh later on what God really wanted them to say in the first place, which was to let their people go. But... Even, if, even though they started really, really small by asking for three days, Pharaoh still refused. So what happened? This brought about such a huge disappointment for Moses and the Israelites that led them to doubting God and his power to free them from slavery to the Egyptians. If, if you can't even get three days from Pharaoh, how are you going to free us? Right? This is what they said uh, in Exodus 5, verse 20. 
They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came to, out from Pharaoh. These are the elders. And they said to them, the Lord, look on you and judge because you have made us think in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. But what happened after that? What happened after Moses and Aaron asked for permission? They were denied and then what happened? Remember, work was added. Okay? Instead of uh, delivering the, the ingredients or the supplies they need to make bricks, they said, no, you gather your own straws. And then you go, you go make bricks. But I don't want the production to drop. It has to be the same. That's why the elders are like, what, are you, what would you do? You made our lives harder. And keep going. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, Lord, why have you done evil to these people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to these people, and you have not delivered your people at all. I said about this, Moses, in his disappointment, even compared God to Pharaoh. When he said, both of you are doing evil to these people. Then, keep going, 24, or 23, yeah, that's, it, that's the end, right? So both, both of them, uh, in disappointment, Moses said what he said. Uh, and I, I, if I was God, I would just say, you know what, forget you. <laughs> just one little road bump, one little, little bump in the road and you're, you're out of here? Are you, what kind of faith, what kind of faith is, is that? Um, so how did God respond? Well, uh, God responded to the doubts by first reminding Moses and the Israelites, and I think us, the readers, of his character, who he is. I am the Lord. Uh, I'm the one who appeared to your forefathers. Uh, and second, he reminded Moses and the Israelites and us of his promises and his faithfulness to fulfill them no matter what happens. This is me, okay? This is me you're talking about. I'm not the same as Pharaoh. Uh, I fulfill my promises. And then third, and this is where our focus was back in November, God reminded us of what he will do. So he didn't just say, this is me, and this is what I do. Or this is me and this is what I'm, uh, I'm capable of as far as his faithfulness is concerned. No, this is what I'm going to do specifically to save you. And I called it the seven I wills of God. Remember that? Seven I wills of God in, verse, in, cha in chapter 6. This is God's promised salvation in seven statements of guaranteed action on God, God's part. So God didn't say I might, I may. Uh, no, he said I will. Promise salvation, God's promised salvation in seven statements of guaranteed action on God's part. We only took up the first three I will statements, if you can remember, okay? The first two I will statements talked about how God will free the Israelites from slavery, okay? He will free them. I'll take you out of there. I will free you from slavery. The third I will statement talked about God's redemption, if you guys remember that, okay? How God will redeem, not just free but in order to free, he has to redeem. And that redemption is what? Remember, it's a financial term. It means that God will have to pay something to redeem. Um, that's Exodus 
6, 6. Um, can we read it again? Can you guys read it? Right, I will redeem you with what? An outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. Uh, and that's where we ended. That's where we ended our study of Exodus last year. Now this morning, we're going to focus on the next two I will statements found in verse 7. Check out verse 7, and, and you guys read it again. So, God said, not only will I redeem you, but I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you will remember, you shall know, it is me that took you out of there. It is me that brought you out under the burdens of the Egyptians. So, so far, the major themes that we have seen of God's salvation through these I will statements are these. Freedom, redemption, and now we're going to see uh, this other aspect of God's salvation that we don't usually talk about. Uh, it's called the adoption aspect. Right? Uh, and I said this on my last sermon, if you want to check it out again. Um, the redemption that God paid or that God accomplished in um, freeing us when he bought us back, they didn't just buy our freedom, it also bought our adoption. Okay? And I'm going to get into it as we uh, go through the message this morning. So the fourth and fifth I will statement shows us that the cost of redemption, again, was not only for freedom, but for our adoption. And again, adoption is one of those aspects of salvation that's rarely discussed and talked about in the, on the pulpit uh, and even in regular Bible studies or small groups. Uh, there's a book by J.I. Packer that really opened my eyes to this aspect of adoption. Uh, and uh, The book is entitled Knowing God. I don't know if you guys, somebody, some of you have read that book, but it's a really good book from, from J.I. Packer. So uh, adoption, what, what, why is it that adoption uh, is sometimes skipped when it comes to God's salvation? Uh, because if you think about it, um, the way we talk about salvation is, number one, is justification. Number two is, nobody wants to say this one. I hate this one. <laughs> Sanctification. And then, glorification. Now, in between justification and sanctification, there's one more thing that's really important, and that is adoption. Once you are justified, you are adopted. Right? This, this, this concept or this uh, idea of adoption comes within or between justification and sanctification. Right? So justification, the focus of justification is the legality of our salvation. Right? That's why it's using legal terms, justified. Uh, what does it mean? Legally, God purchased us, redeemed us for salvation. And that leads to what? Sanctification, right? 
And sanctification is the effects of that. So what happens is somebody who has been freed from slavery to sin and has become a slave to righteousness through justification, through redemption. Right? Somebody who has gone through that will be sanctified. Or in the process of this, remember salvage? We talked about this two weeks ago. When something is salvaged, it is first saved or, or searched for, rescued, and then restored. Right? This is the restoration part of salvation, the sanctification part, or the purification. Now, what's so special about adoption? Adoption speaks to both, both justification and sanctification. And it, help us, it helps us go extreme either way. Right? It helps us go extreme on think and thinking that, hey, since we've been justified, we can do whatever we want. There's no change necessary. Right? Because we've been justified. You're supposed to be saved by faith, not by works. Right? On the other side, on the, on the sanctification side, if you're extreme sanctification, you always think, I got to do something. I got to, right? I got to work. I got to do this. I got to go to church. I got to pray. I got to, I got to do all these things in order that God may favor me. With the doctrine of adoption, it helps us not go to that extreme. And it helps us not go to the other extreme of, you know, you know extreme grace mentality. How? Well, keep listening. Keep listening. And that's the importance uh, when it comes to the doctrine of adoption. Is it talks about both. Uh, and what I mean by that is that if there were stages, or if you were to place stages of salvation in order, again, it's sanctification, or sorry, justification, sanctification, and glorification. And adoption is right in the middle of a justification and sanctification. Um, now, my goal this morning is to show you uh, that the doctrine of adoption is, as Piper calls it, the heart of the gospel. Have you ever heard that said about the doctrine of adoption? It's at the heart of the gospel. If it is, then why don't we talk about it some more? We should talk about it, right? Uh, we're going to take these next two Sundays to talk about it. The middle stage between being justified by faith and slowly becoming more and more like Jesus through a progressive sanctification which then leads to a believer's glorification is that of adoption. Uh, in fact, uh, J.I. Packer said this about adoption. In, in his book, Knowing God, he said, If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought, that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Harsh statements. So it, it, does this mean that we, since we as a church, we haven't really talked about this yet, are, are we true Christians? <laughs> Do we understand what it means to be a child of, uh, of God? I think it's very important, right? In fact, so important, Paul wrote about it in Romans 8. 
Check out Romans 8, 1 to 17. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set us free, or set you free, in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. What is that? Justification, right? Might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are not or those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of God does not belong, or the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give you to you your mortal bodies through the Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, but to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are Sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And then this is the verse that everybody loves. And if children, heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, and then this is the part of the verse everybody hates. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may be also glorified with him. Now, based on that text, I'm going to ask you a couple of questions. Why is there no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? Number one. And who are those who live and are led by the Spirit of God? Answer is in verse 15. What's verse 15 say? Somebody look for it. Verse 15. I should have bookmarked this. Oh, there. Okay. Verse 15 says, Because you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but what did you receive? What spirit did you receive? Spirit of adoption. So those who are no, no longer condemned, for those who are, who are in Christ Jesus are those who are adopted. For those who are living by the Spirit and led by the Spirit of God are those who are adopted. Now, uh, there's a question, another question I should ask. Aren't we supposed to be like born again? Right? That's when you, when you become part of God's family, you're born again. Right? It's like um, 
if I was to be, if I was to become or be a member of a different family, God says, no, I'll bring you into that family through natural causes, like being born. So why why I need it for adoption? Because adoption is being a part of the family through uh, what? Legal process. But as we go through again, I just want you guys to keep thinking about these things while we, we do this. I want you to see why, why is there adoption for if we're supposed to be born again into this family. Right? Ephesians says that. Galatians says that. Right? Um, so why is it? Why do we need adoption? Especially since adoption, like, especially for me, adoption for me has a negative connotation. Uh, growing up in the, in the Philippines... My understanding of adoption has, a, again, a negative aspect to it. Right? It seems as though the focus of being adopted is that of not being wanted. That's the focus. When you're adopted, right? No, I don't, your, real, your real parents don't want you. Right? You're not wanted by your biological parents. And some, you're not even wanted by your adoptive parents. So there's like, a, there's like this... This negative connotation to it. Right? It seems like being adopted uh, means that even though you have been brought into a family, you're not really treated as a member of the family. You're like a second-class family member. I hear terms in Tagalog like, Ampun ka lang eh. You always hear that, right? Ampun ka lang Lakas mo kumain, ampun ka lang You always hear that, right? You just adopted. You're not a real member of this, of this family. Um, so I, I researched the internet. Maybe it's just me. Maybe because I watch too much, you know, Gulong Nampalad and uh, <laughs> Teleseries back in the Philippines. <laughs> Maybe it's just me. So uh, I researched, uh, and there was this Filipino woman who actually was adopted who wrote an article. She was adopted back in 1995. And, he, and she wrote this article. I'm going to read some of it to you, okay? Uh, she said, I grew up in a time where adoption or being adopted had a negative stigma. I guess it's still around even to this day, no? I'm sure you have heard the statement, Ampon Kalang, in many teleseries where the child from a rich family finds out from one of her siblings that she's not the real child of the parents. Because she is adopted, she has no right to anything. She's not their real child. And then cue the iyakan, crying, sampalan. Sinong aling? Cue the takbo sa ulan. Ampun lang ako. Right? And then, while she's running, while the adopted child is running in the rain, a bus hits her. Boom. But that's, that's how adoption is portrayed in the Philippines. And then she wakes up with amnesia or, or something. Uh, the ampon kalang mindset makes adoption seems like it's something that should be hidden or something to be ashamed of. When in reality, it isn't. This makes being adopted look like we have limited access to our rights as children or that we have to strive to earn the right to be real children, when in reality, that's not true. Okay? 
It's by Rachel Escobar. Uh, read it. It's a good. It's a good. Uh, it's a good article. So if that's not true, if the teleseries are lying all these years about adoption, what is the truth about adoption? Well, at its foundation, the idea of adoption is not about humans adopting humans. It's about God adopting humans. That's at the very foundation of what adoption is. It's not about uh, us. It's about God adopting us. And we see this in Galatians 4, 45. It says there, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption. Sons. Right? In Romans 8, Paul talks about, that's what we're waiting for. That's why the earth is groaning. That's why uh, the, the, the people who are believers can't wait for that day, because that's when the sons of God, the adopted sons of God, will be fully revealed. Um, so that's, that's what adoption is as far as the Bible is concerned. It started with God adopting us. Now here we can see in Galatians 4 and uh, 4 to 5, you can see the idea of adoption is at the heart of the gospel. And I said this as well in my last sermon regarding redemption, the price paid by God in redemption, namely through the blood of Christ, is not only to redeem us to become slaves to righteousness, but also that we might receive adoption. Now, when it comes to God's adoption, there are two things I would like for us to focus on. The, leg the legality of it, or the legal aspect of it, of adoption, and the basis of it, or the root or the foundation of adoption. So let's start first with the legal aspect of adoption. Now, this aspect of adoption deals with the status of the adopted child in the eyes of the law. For you to adopt a child, you don't just go to, it's not like going to a pet store and buying a dog. Well, actually, there's still, if you go to a pet store to buy a dog, there's still some legal documents that you need to sign and you need to pay for. But when it comes to adopting a child, there are legal rules, there, there's legal aspect to it, right? The legal aspect begins with the status of the adopted child in the eyes of the law. So human adoption is also based on this. Okay? God's adoption is based on that. Human adoption is also based on that. There has to be proof under the law that the identity of an adopted child has been changed from his or her biological parents to that of the child's adoptive parents. That's what needs to change status of the child under the law. And much like any legal process, adopting a child legally comes with it financial costs that are paid for by the adoptive parents. Right? It costs money to adopt a child. Apart from the legal cost to adopt a child, financially adoptive parents must have the financial resources to raise the child. You can't just adopt a child if you're living on the street. They won't give the child to you. Right? You need to be able to provide for the child's physical needs, which includes you know, a roof over the child's head, clothing, food, education, all that stuff. God's adoption of sinners is the same, similar to it. There are some legal realities that come with it as well. Uh, but the main difference is that God is also 
the judge. <laughs> That's the biggest difference. God is also the judge presiding over the adoption process. And God being the judge meant that God has to deal with his own justice and his own law to punish and exclude sinners from his presence because of our sins. How does that work? If the adopted child that you're trying to adopt is an outlaw, so to speak. That's why our text in Galatians 4 talks about redemption first. Right? Redemption through the blood of Christ must come first because it is only through the redemption of the blood that God is able to satisfy his own justice and law in order to adopt sinners into his family. That's why in Exodus, adoption came after redemption. After that happens, after the legality is settled, it means that we are legally already sons and daughters of God before we can even experience what it's like to be a child of God. You get that part? So legally, after the legal process is done, papers signed, fines paid. Legally, you're already adopted. Right? But it takes a few weeks for you to actually go to your adoptive parents. You don't come right away. People who are adopting from China, they, they have to like wait for sometimes months for all these paperwork to be, uh, to be finished before they can be truly adopted. Same with salvation. Right? That's why I said, but <laughs> here's the thing. With salvation, it doesn't take months or weeks. Sir. Uh, so in salvation, once you're adopted legally, that's your assurance that, hey, I'm I'm adopted. Even though sometimes you don't act like it. Okay, you know where I'm going with this. Um, but you, you'll know later on once we get to the other part. So legally, God has to do that first. He has to redeem us first, do the legal aspect of adoption first. Uh, and that's why I said earlier that the doctrine of adoption talks about justification by faith first. Legally, this is how God redeems us to be adopted into his family by satisfying his own justice through the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, and then, by grace, enabling sinners to be legally adopted by God to become God's children. Now, once the legality of adoption is done, which is God's way of providing for the spiritual needs of his children, God, being the good father that he is, also promises to provide for his adoptive, adoptive children's physical needs as well. That's part of the legal process, right? You have money to pay for this? Yes? Can you support the child? Same with God. God had to pay redemption first, but can he support those adoptive children of his? Well, yes, he can. Matthew 6, 25 to 34. I want you guys to read this.
So can God provide? For the needs, right? It doesn't say there, um, don't worry about your new car. Don't worry about your <laughs> nice watch. Don't worry about your jewelry. No, it's just for the needs. Clothing, shelter, and food. God is able to provide. Right? So there's no, there's no questions about that. But that also doesn't mean that everyone with food, shelter, and clothing is an adopted child of God. So don't think that way. Okay? Not everyone, some, of, some people have more shelter, food, and clothing than us. Does that make us, oh, we're second, you know, how come the Jewish, the Jewish people have big houses? <laughs> is it because they're the real sons and daughters of God? And we're, we're not, so we live in small houses. <laughs> That's not what that means. Not because they have bigger, better, right? Does not mean that we're, you know, second, second-hand citizens, right? Instead, I think this text tells us that if you're an adoptive child, adopted child of God, first, you will not be anxious. You will not be worried about your physical needs because you believe that God will provide. That's the, the main difference between us and those people who have also houses and food and clothing. Second, God's adopted children will seek him first and his righteousness. His son, Jesus Christ, and trust him for all their physical needs. An adopted child of God lives by faith in God's faithfulness to provide. And that's not only rely on their own strength or on money to provide for their needs. And that's the aspect of adoption that speaks on justification. When, when we are justified, God is fully equipped, fully prepared. He has the resources to be able to redeem us and also take care of us so that we shouldn't be anxious about anything that we need. Okay. When that happens, justification part of adoption is complete. That's where we're legally now gods. So what happens next? Next comes the aspect of adoption that displays for us what it means to be sanctified through the biblical theme of sonship. Okay. So once you're adopted, you are now a child of God. Now what does it mean to be a child of God? Is it just to be God as our Father? Is it just to be in the family of God? Jesus is our brother? Is that what sonship means in the Bible? Well, this expression, son of God, okay, you see it all over scriptures. That expression can refer to many different people and to both men and women. Right? If you read your Bibles, when you see son of God, it doesn't necessarily refer to just Jesus Christ. It could refer to a lot of people. In fact, it can also refer to angels. If you read Job 1.6. Even angels are sons of God. Or to the whole nation of Israel. In our text in Exodus 4, 22-23 and Hosea 11.1. 1, the Israelites are referred to as son of God. Son can also refer to individual Israelites. So not the whole nation 
but individual Israelites can be called son of God. Right? Or even Israelites King David was once referred to as my son or son of God in 2 Samuel 7, 14. Before even, even before he became king, he was referred to as son of God. In the New Testament, the phrase son of God can refer to Christians. Romans 8, 15. So if I was to ask here, who's the son of God here? Nobody? One. One daughter of God. There's another one, another daughter. The rest are sons of somebody else. <laughs> Christians are referred to as son of God. Romans 8, 15. Or ultimately, it refers to Jesus himself as son of God in John 17, 1. So now the question is, what does it mean to be called a son of God? Because it means so many things in the Bible. It could refer to so many different people, not just Jesus Christ. If you're to be called a son of God, what do you think that means? If you want to know, <laughs> come back next week. We're going to take up, what does he mean to be son of God? Does he mean to just be, yeah, to call God as father, to relate to him as that? Or to be part of God's family? Or something else? Come back next week. We'll take that up further. Uh, if you want, you can read up. <laughs> Keep reading on the doctrine of adoption. There's a good article by Don Carson on the doctrine of adoption in uh, the Design God website. You'll see uh, what I'm talking about. But hopefully you can come back next week for that part. Amen? All right. Let's, let's pray. The Lord.